Let us turn now at God's holy word for our instruction, for our praise, for our worship. This night we turn to the book of Revelation and the chapter 11. The book of Revelation and the 11th chapter. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. The Lord help us and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word this night. There was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, they shall prophesy a thousand and two and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and and half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they shall dwell, they that shall dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. But we'll end the reading there in the book of the Revelation, chapter 11, and we turn now to the prophet Zechariah and the fourth chapter, Zechariah chapter 4. Again, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord help us as we come to his word. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon 
the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his precious word. All to the glory of his name and to the good of our never-dying souls. Let us come before the Lord in needful prayer this night. Well, dear friends, I'd like to now turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing earlier there in the book of Revelation. We arrive this evening in the 11th chapter. And uh, by the way, let me remind you that uh, as we come to these chapters, that Originally, there were no chapter divisions. They can be helpful, but we do need to remember that often uh, one chapter will be leading straight on from the next, and I trust that you will see this in just a moment. And by way of introduction this evening, I remind you of the closing of the chapter 10, because it's significant when we come here to chapter 11. In chapter 10, you remember, John was given that little book, which is the Word of God, and more specifically, the Gospel, and also described as that mystery. Paul speaks, does he not, of the mystery of the Gospel. It's not that it's mysterious, it's that it was hidden from such a long time ago, and then revealed when Jesus Christ came into this world. And he was told that as he took that book, he was to eat it. Uh, He was to consume it. And it's so true with our Bibles. We are reminded, aren't we, um, not only in Zechariah, and not only in Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel was to eat the scroll which God gave him. And uh, the psalmist tells us that his God's word was sweet to his taste. And it's so true for us, if we have come to know the Saviour, the Gospel is sweet to us. In fact, the whole of God's Word is sweet. Because we're reminded from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis we have the fall. But in Genesis chapter 3 we also have the first Gospel promise, don't we? Genesis 3.15. That God would send the seed of the woman into this world. And the whole of the Bible really is sweet, isn't it? Though we see man's fall. Yet we see God's grace toward his people to save an innumerable company of people out of this fallen world. And here we are, if we are believers, God has saved us purely by his grace. We were dead, we could never come to God. And therefore we are reminded that the word would be sweet to John because God sent 
his sweet and only begotten Son, who was altogether lovely, into this world to become a ransom for many, for his people. But he was told that that same book would also lead to a bitter experience. He experienced bitterness in his stomach, as it were. Speaking symbolically, I suppose things can be bitter to our stomachs. It would be hard for him to digest. In that spiritual sense, it would bring a bitter experience of life. Why? Because most people in this world will resent this word. And we do believe God has said that he is coming in judgment. And the scriptures say God commands all men everywhere to repent, but men will not repent. And uh, sadly, many of our unbelieving family members will not repent, and they will despise the gospel. They will despise Christ, and they will even take his name, sadly, as a swear word in this world. And uh, as I said, just as Ezekiel was to eat that scroll that would be sweet to his taste, but the people in his day wouldn't heed. And so it is, by and large, isn't it? It's true in this world. So we saw in verse 10 of chapter 10, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And you notice in the verse 11, the angel who he took the book from told him that he would, he must prophesy again. That word really means to preach again. John would be released from exile on the island of Patmos and he would preach before many peoples and nations. So that would have served as an encouragement to John the Apostle. And uh, he would declare the things of Christ. John, uh, perhaps now the last living apostle, and he would indeed take the word out. Again, these uh, truths carry on. And you notice Chapter 11 begins with the word, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod. So the same angel gives him a reed like unto a rod that he is to measure the church with. We see he is to measure, as we'll see tonight, the true church of God, the true temple of God, those in the inner court. And uh, we notice in the verse 1 there, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. In other words, here's the inner court, the court of the true Jews. Remember there was a court of the Gentiles on the outside. Many of you have studied with us as we went through the book of Exodus. And um, we should know the, the structure of the temple. There was the outer Gentile court. And unless you were circumcised and become a Jew, you couldn't enter into that, that inner court. But if you were a proselyte, like Abraham was once, Abraham wasn't a Jew, but there was a time he was circumcised. He wasn't a Jew by birth. But a man could become a true Jew by circumcision. But these here in this court have the inward circumcision of the heart. And uh, 
What we'll see here tonight is the true church of the living God. We could put over this passage, I suppose, the theme, the church of God persecuted. Now remember, we're still in the third cycle. There are seven cycles, aren't there? Remember in the first cycle we saw the seven candlesticks. Now the seven cycles, as we've said many times, are things from different perspectives, things from different vantage points. First of all, the first cycle has to do with the seven candlesticks, which we're told represent the churches. And it's the churches through the Gospel Age. Not just the seven churches that existed in Asia Minor at that time, but they are representative, as we've seen time again, of all true churches throughout the Gospel Age. And so we saw in the first cycle, from that perspective, the church will indeed exist on earth. And Christ, who has the seven spirits, walks amidst the golden lampstands. We'll say golden lampstands and we'll see them again, even here tonight. And then we thought in the second cycle of the seven seals. And remember the first four seals have to do with the four riders on the horses. And the first, of course, is Christ, as we've seen. We later see him in Revelation chapter 19. And we see him with many crowns. There he goes out first, the first horse, riding, conquering, and to conquer. He already has a crown on his head. He's been crowned with glory now. And he will overcome and continue to overcome until he makes his enemies his footstool. So the other horses, of course, as we've seen, are all subservient to his one great cause, that God will be glorified through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw seals 5, 6, and 7, those unfolding events throughout this world, great calamities. These are all in the purpose of God, and only Christ is worthy to unloose the seals, which represent God's unfolding of the decrees of the things that happen in this world. And then we've started to see in the third cycle the seven trumpets. And we're right now in the midst of these. In this chapter, right at the end, we're not going to deal with all of this chapter. There's too much here tonight in chapter 11. We're only going to consider uh, the first few verses. But the seventh seal is opened up in this chapter. And of course, then it goes on to the next cycle. And uh, what we see here in this chapter are the true worshippers of God amidst the tribulation of this world. Now, of course, as we come to the temple, the first thing I need to remind you of, the time now somewhere around 95, 98 AD, 25 years have already passed since the temple in Jerusalem has been laid waste. Remember, if you turn to Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus, he takes his disciples there upon the Mount of Olivet and he tells them that, that not one stone will be laid upon another. The entire temple will be broken down, destroyed and desecrated as well. 
in uh, verse 1 of Matthew 24, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And so on. And so, in that chapter, he tells us the signs. And he says at that time, Pray that your flight will not be on the Sabbath. And that proves that there is a Sabbath. There remained a Sabbath. The Lord never got his end-time theology wrong. There remains a Sabbath. And uh, we know that in AD 70, the temple was completely destroyed and not one stone was left upon another. Now, it's interesting and it's important that I said this because when we open here to chapter 11, there's no more temple to measure. 25 years have passed and uh, John is told here, go and measure the temple. There was given me a reed like unto a rod, verse 1, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. Now, of course, he's not to measure an actual building, is he? Because it's no building to measure. It's completely been demolished. It's gone. It's been destroyed. But really, this has to do with the spiritual temple. And this also is to remind us of many things. Now, I said at the outset that if we consider the temple itself, whether in Herod's day or in Solomon's day or the tabernacle of old, it was just grander much later on. You had the court of the Gentiles on the outside and then you had the court of the Jews on the inside And only if you were a circumcised person and thus became a Jew, and you could become a Jew by being circumcised, you could enter into that inner court. And so what is being conveyed here? There's no actual physical temple to measure when you think of it. It's gone. And there is John on the island of Patmos. So what is he to do? Of course, he understands that this is a vision, that this is a symbol, this this is a sign. And there are those we could say, spiritually speaking, who have an attachment to the church, but they're just like the Gentiles. I mean, if you really believed in Jehovah in the Old Testament, why wouldn't you be circumcised? Why wouldn't you become a Jew? You see, there are many that just wanted to attend. And it's the same today. There are many that, spiritually speaking, were just like the Gentiles in that day. They were not circumcised in heart. True Jewish spiritualhood means what? Circumcision of the heart. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul tells us what a true Jew is. Have a look there. It's important that you see a true Jew is one that is one inwardly circumcised in the heart. And this pictures what? It pictures the new birth, as we'll see from Colossians. Romans 2.28 For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is that of the heart. It's being born again. It's having a new heart. It's the promise, isn't it, of Ezekiel, that I will give them a new heart, which is in the spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now just remember, I want to take your minds back to Revelation chapter 7. Remember John, in chapter 7, if you just turn there to chapter 7, John, first of all, what is he? He hears a number from heaven. And what's the number? It's the number 144,000. And we're told there that there is a thousand from each tribe. And that, of course, only leaves you with 12,000, doesn't it? 12 times 1,000 is 12,000. But it's 12 times 12. It means, literally, the whole of God's people who are described as true spiritual Jews. Remember what we've just read from Romans chapter 2, 28. He is a Jew who is one inwardly that has been circumcised, where? In the heart, not in the flesh. The person is born again. Now notice Revelation 7, 3. Where we're told here, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now verse 4, And I heard, John hears, first of all, the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed and hurt. 144 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So John, first of all, hears, doesn't he? It's a number that he hears. But then, later, he sees the number. And it's a number that he cannot number. Out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, look at verse 9. And after this, verse 9, Revelation 7, 9, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man can number of all nations. So the number that he hears, when he sees it, it's vast. From all different kindreds and classes of people of this world who have been redeemed and have made white their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. These are them that are sealed and who are the Lord's people. Now remember the number thousand here as we think of these twelve tribes. A thousand from each. The number thousand simply means all. In Deuteronomy 7.9 we're told that he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's all generations. So you don't get to the thousand and once generation then he doesn't have mercy. It, it simply is emblematic or symbolic of all. So you have all, all of God's people. And then also in Psalm 50, verse 10, we have these words, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. Now how many hills are in the world? There are more than a thousand hills, surely. But it's what we call euphemistic language, simply conveying that everything is God, all. So, we have the picture of all of God's people. And who are they? They're all truly Jews. You say, hold on a minute. Well, I say, hold on a minute too. There was a time when Abraham was not a Jew. Remember when he was in Haran? 
ancient Mesopotamia. He came out of pagan darkness. But before he was circumcised, outwardly, we're told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, that he received the blessedness of God, the circumcision of the heart, before he was circumcised outwardly. He was circumcised inwardly. And the proof of it is that he had faith. He was born again first. And then he had faith. And by faith he followed and obeyed God. Now, the term Jew is a shortened form of the word Judah. I trust you know that. And who would come from the tribe of Judah? Not only David, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, wouldn't he? And all God's people are saved through Christ. And you see, that promise was originally given to Abraham that he would have a people as vast as the sands of the seashore. Not nationalistic Israel, but a spiritual Israel who are circumcised in heart, who are not actually in the, the, the earthly temple, but who are a people here as pictured in chapter 11, close to God, obedient to God, and who want to honor God. We're told in Galatians 3.27, Paul says, for as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. He says, never mind. There's no more such thing as a Jew, nationalistic Jew, who is truly a child of God. He said, that's done away with. God has broken down the middle wall of partition. Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. But then he says here, and if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. I'm a seed of Abraham. A spiritual promised seed. Notice Galatians 3.29. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, God chose a people before the world began that he would send his spirit into their hearts. Galatians 4, we're told, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, because ye are sons of God, God has sent forth his Spirit into your hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The fact that you began to pray was because God had already sent his Spirit into your hearts. That's an amazing thing. You would never cry, Abba, Father, unless God had quickened you, saved you. It's all of God's grace. And so here in Revelation 4, uh, Revelation 11. John here is told to measure the inner court, not the outward court. Notice, he's told, he says, but the court, verse 2, which is without the temple, leave out. Don't count them. These are not God's people. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And by the way, remember the Gentiles in the outer court wouldn't, didn't want to be circumcised. Still at a distance. If you were a true Jew, you'd want to be circumcised outwardly, wouldn't you? Because it was a sign and seal of Abraham's faith. The righteousness, Paul says, of Abraham's faith. Now, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.11, 
concerning every believer, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not that of Moses. In putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, it's by the fact that you're putting off sin proves that you have a new heart. That's the proof of it. It's the circumcision of Christ which is the new birth. It's not here now when the angel says to John, it's not as if God doesn't know who are truly his. But this is for our sakes. And as we'll see during the gospel age, there's going to be a superficiality in the church. There are going to be those who are just on the fringe. They're not in the inner court. They don't truly serve God. And God knows. You see, many are self-deceived. That's why Paul had to write to the Corinthians and say, examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. There are those who think because they have a, a mere attachment to the church that they are the Lord's. And this is for us to take heed to make sure. And it's true for every true, true minister, as John was told in the previous chapter at the end that he would have to preach, as the minister of God preaches the word of God, he must know that there is going to be opposition to certain things. And he must know that in the faithful preaching of the word, there's going to be a sifting between the true and the false believer. Remember what John said, they went out from among you because they were not of you. That's what John says here, but he says, but ye have an unction, ye have the Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you just turn to Philippians 3, he marks three things that distinguish what a true believer is like. There were those who were called Judaizers, the Jews who thought that, well, in order to be a full-blown kosher Christian, you had to be circumcised too. And you had to do certain things and perform certain religious acts and rites. Paul has to warn the Philippians. In Philippians 3.2 he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision. He says, we want you to know we, as fellow ministers, are the true circumcision. And what does it look like? Number one, which worship God in the Spirit. That's the first thing. Number two, and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Thirdly, and have no confidence in the flesh. Three marks of a true believer. Just one of three marks. He says, beware of those who call themselves Jews but are not. And persecution we will, we will see come from those who are on the outer court. These will trample the holy city. The holy city of God's true people will receive persecution from the so-called professing church that are not the professing church. Why? Because they've shown up for what they really are. Let me say this to you, Rome. has persecuted so many Christians. And more. As we will see others too. 
But notice verse 2, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not for, because it is given unto the Gentiles. And by the way, these Gentiles are not spiritual believers. Now notice, and the holy city, that's God's people, not natural Jerusalem, not the real Jerusalem, shall they, that is those on the outer court, they shall tread underfoot forty and two months. And we'll consider the significance of what is that forty and two months. It's interesting, isn't it? I've said before that persecution not only comes from the world, but so many who profess to be the true children of God, but are not, but who are the harlots, who are false believers. Consider, if you just turn back to Revelation 2, verse 9, I want you to see, first of all, there were the Jews insisting on the outward rite of circumcision, and Paul had to warn the Galatians, but it was the church at Smyrna that had received such hatred, from those who said they were Jews, but they were not truly Jews. Revelation 2.9 We read, The Lord Jesus says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Well, they didn't have much in terms of worldly goods, but the Lord said, you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But thou be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Many suffered at the hands of pseudo-Christians. They weren't really Christians. They were insisting on outward right. As I said, there's also the Church of Rome, down through the ages. I mean, the Church of Rome will begin in the next couple of centuries after this, or the next century. Papacy will begin to flourish, and has been ever since. And you think of what Rome has done. How many Protestants have been killed. Think of all the Huguenots in France, over 80,000 of them. Many of them arrived on our shores. Look across our land, see all the martyrs that were slain, that were burned at the stake, and so on. Most persecution has come from a professing, believing group. Now, there are some time periods, as we'll see, that seem somewhat perplexing. You notice in verse 3, John reads that these in the outer court will trample the holy city, that is the people of God, 42 months. You notice the time we're told here? And the holy city shall they tread underfoot 40 and 2 months. Well, that's three and a half years. If you do the mathematics. 12 threes the 36, and then three and a half years, another six months, that's three and a half years. And then if you notice... In the verse 3, there are two witnesses which we shall consider. The two witnesses preach or prophesy in sackcloth. Notice, 203 score days. That's exactly the same amount of time. 
42 months is how long? A thousand, one thousand, two hundred and sixty days. That's 42 months. So it's, a, it's just another way of saying, during this whole time, these people will preach the word of God. This is, let me submit to you, throughout the gospel age. While they are being persecuted, the true church will witness in sackcloth. And by the way, where you have sackcloth, it is always representative. It always is associated with repentance. Those that have truly repented, these will preach or minister, declare the word of God throughout this time. And those on the outer court will persecute the true church. Solemn, isn't it? And I will give power, verse 3, unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy, see notice again, a thousand two hundred and three score days. So, that's 1260 days, if you work it out, 42 months. That's if a month is 30, day, 30 days, so 30 times 42 is 1260 days. It's the same time period, it's just another way of saying it. Now, if you turn over to the next chapter, chapter 12, verses 5 to 6, I want you to notice, this is, again, you'll see the same number appear. And here we have, moving into the next cycle, and we notice here, and she, and this is clearly Revelation 2, sorry, 12, verse 5, and she, and this is clearly speaking of the church, the bride of Christ, brought forth a man-child. That's Christ. Christ was born, wasn't he, from Mary, and Mary and Joseph were part of true believing people. Remember, God said that one would come from that godly line, line of the tribe of Judah. And she, that's the woman who is clearly the bride of Christ, brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, that's clear language from Psalm 2 and the verse 9. You go home and read that. Speaks of Christ, that he shall dash the nations, that he shall rule with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God, taken up. After Christ lived his 33 years, he then suffered upon a cross, and then he was taken up, note, unto God. And notice, and to his throne. Where is Christ now? He is on his throne. And he lives and he intercedes for his people. Now notice, verse 6, and the woman, that's the church again, fled into the wilderness. It's a picture here. Where she hath placed a place prepared of God that they should feed her, that is the church, there. Now notice how long. How long? A thousand two hundred and three score days. It's the same number, isn't it? Twelve hundred and sixty days. So it's the same time. It's the time of Christ's ascension until his final coming. The church will be as it is persecuted in this world of Egypt as a wilderness. And it will be persecuted for the same time. So what is being quantified here is the entire gospel age since Christ died and he bruised Satan's head 
And finally, he shall crush Satan's head and he shall be cast into the lake of fire. It's this time of the gospel age when the church will be persecuted in the wilderness and God will take care of his bride. He will feed his bride. He will preserve his bride, as we will see. Of course, the, the, the number here, 1260 days, is not literal. It's figurative, as we've seen so many times. The church is not going to be here for three and a half years. would have long gone if it was literal. But it's, it's all figurative. If you come down to Revelation 12:14, you'll notice again, we read, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. I suggest to you that's three and a half years. A time is one year, and times, two years, and half a time. That's the three and a half years. It's another way of saying the three and a half years, 1260 days, spiritually speaking, as it were. Now we come back and we ask, who are these witnesses in verses 3, 4, and 5? Who are these two witnesses? And we see how they're represented here during the Gospel age. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy or preach a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. Clothed in sackcloth or mourning or repentance, these are the two olive trees. Now we'll consider, as we read from Zechariah, didn't we, chapter 3 this evening. And the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Well, we're already told in the book of the Revelation, chapter 1, that the church is a candlestick. It was always meant to be as a light to the world, in this world of darkness. And olive trees, we'll consider what these represent. And uh, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. It's not as if the church is going to be a, a fire-breathing and destroying church, but God will bring vengeance upon the enemies of his people. And there might seem times that it's not so, but God will surely destroy the enemies of his church. That's what's being conveyed. And, uh, and if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. God is surely saying here that he will avenge the enemies of his bride, the church. Now we notice what are these witnesses? Well, in the first place, there are two characters that are, I believe are set forth here. One is Elijah, and then another Moses. And then we've got the figures of um, the olive trees and then the candlesticks. But we'll separate those for the moment. But clearly by the language being used here, in verses 5 and 6, we want to consider first of all, um, Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses like them. The church is going to be like that. What is God saying? His true church, his true bride, his power will be with them, just like Elijah. Remember in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. And by the way, Israel were meant to be a light, and these were false believers. And they persecuted the prophets. You know in 1 Kings chapter 18 how Obadiah uh, had to look after the prophets in the days of Elisha. 
how he hid them. And then there were, well, it was, it was a dark day, wasn't it? When Ahab and Jezebel opposed Elijah. And what did Elijah do? He prayed. And what happened? God, as it were, shut up the heavens. And there was a dearth. And that was God's judgment. And we're told that uh, in like manner, the Lord will protect his people. And uh, notice verse 6 concerning Elijah, first of all. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy or their preaching. In other words, God will hear the prayers of his true inner court as they cry out to God. These are the witnesses. They prophesy, they preach, yet they persecuted by the outer court. Staggering, isn't it? And uh, what happened when Elijah prayed again? After th- and how long did the famine come for? Three and a half years, wasn't it? Three and a half years it was. Just as we have here. Symbolic. And then Elijah prayed again and God opened up the heavens. Remember he saw a cloud as small as a fist in the sky. God opened up the heavens. And then what else did... Remember how the prophets of Baal were slain. Yes, that's what happened. Mount Carmel after that. The Lord showed himself to be almighty God. And then of course there is... Moses pictured here in verse 5. Notice, and if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Think of what Moses did. Also, we have here of the language concerning in verse 6. These not only have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of prophet, their prophecy, but have power over waters, verse 6, to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues. This is language taken, isn't it, from the Exodus. When God was judging Egypt and Pharaoh, this is what we're being told is, it's the same God. He will do all to keep his church, to preserve his church. God will bring plagues upon this earth. We've read, haven't we, of the decrees unfolding. We've read of the trumpets. And all of these things come because of the prayers of God's people. And they are effectively warnings that there is coming a great day of destruction upon those who persecute the church. And uh, we're told that in spite of all the trumpet warnings, They never repented. They keep persecuting the true church of God. Why? Because the true church of God always shows up the empty professor as well as the world. Never mind those in the outer court, but the whole world knows because the world has the laws of God written upon their hearts of stone. Romans 2, 14 and 15. The world knows. They're not living to the honour and glory of God. So these are the witnesses, but they seem here, in terms of how God will act, just as in the days of Moses, just as in the days of Elijah, and I think it's very typical. Think of it, Moses was amidst a complete Gentile people. The world 
Pharaoh. But in the days of Elijah, the people were meant to be the professing people of God. They had a mere attachment. And yet they persecuted. Remember, if you just turn there to 1 Kings 18, Jezebel, when Ahab saw Elijah, he says this. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Art he that troubleth Israel? Can you believe it? It was Ahab that was really troubling Israel. It was Ahab and his wife that were introducing false worship and wickedness. Verse 18, he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Baalim. My friends, there are many who are like Ahab. You think they are the Lord's people. But you see, Ahab was hunting him down, as with the other true prophets. He was the trouble of Israel. Not, certainly not Elijah, and not Obadiah, as you read on about Obadiah. In verses 2 and 4, we read there, And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and so on. You know the story. Now, we have these witnesses, but now they're also pictured under two Old Testament symbols. We've already learned, haven't we, from the book of the Revelation, that the church is symbolized by a candlestick. Even in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord said, let your light so shine before men. Now, we are the light because Christ is in us. He has made us light. And he has brought us to light. But here we have the olive tree and the candlesticks. And notice, these are the two witnesses. I'll read from verse 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses. And what are the two witnesses? The candlestick and the olive trees. The two candlesticks. Now we know from the Old Testament that in order to bear witness, there had to be two witnesses. Otherwise, a fact, something couldn't be heard. At least two, minimum. And when the Lord sent his disciples out, how many did he send them by? Two by two. And that was to confirm that a true witness was there. So a matter couldn't be heard unless there were two witnesses. Here are the two witnesses. These are the two olive trees, verse 4, and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now we're not to imagine that there are two literal olive trees and there are two literal candlesticks. These are symbolic things concerning the church. And if any man will hurt them, God's not interested in trees, but people. These have to do with real people, his believers. We're already told that in the previous verses. And if they do, the Lord will avenge. Now, if you turn to Zechariah chapter 4, while you're turning there, you may wish to see in 
certainly Zechariah chapter 3, the previous chapter. We have the vision, don't we, of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And there is Satan accusing him because Satan says, Ah, look, he's got filthy garments on. How can he stand before a holy God? Remember, Joshua the high priest was representative of the people. And uh, what is the historical context? Well, the people have now returned from Babylonian captivity. The temple has not yet been built. It's important we take this in. And things were very low, not only spiritually, but the people were very discouraged. And God speaks to Zechariah in the night visions and gives him encouragement. And here's a picture of Zechariah. You can imagine the priesthood is defiled, thinking that all that has happened so far Joshua the high priest, even thinking of his own sin, how can I as a man stand before God? What is the picture? He answered and spake to those that stood before him. Take away, verse 4, Zechariah 3, the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And then you read on. This is amazing. God says, I'm going to take off your high... Priest's clothes, they're filthy. You're not fit. It's a picture of sin, isn't it? Put on him a fair mitre. And upon that mitre said, unto the Lord, service unto the Lord. How is God going to do this? Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And we know who is the branch? The Lord Jesus. The righteous branch, the branch of Jesse. And what will happen? For behold, the stone, that is Christ, of course the stone which the builders rejected, I have laid before Joshua. And upon the stone shall be seven eyes, and I will engrave the engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So what? when was that day? At Calvary. When Christ went to the cross, he took away the sin of his people. And Joshua, despite how low things were, would be assured that God would make atonement for sin, for his sin and his true people. Now, Joshua was a priest, high priest. And you come to chapter 4, we have another picture. We have Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was a leader in his day, and of course, under Zechariah, and uh, others, during this time of captivity, there was this encouraging to build up the work, but things were so low after this Babylonian captivity. And uh, God yet had promised to build his temple. But the people are so low. Everything lay in ruins. And God has sent Zechariah and Haggai and later Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was kind of like a kingly figure. Now remember, Judah, neither Judah nor Israel would have a king again. But Zerubbabel acted as a sort of a king. But no doubt he must have felt very pathetic. And in chapter 4 we see something remarkable. Not only is God going to deal with the sin of the people and uh, take away the filthy garment of 
Joshua the high priest, who represented the people. But, think of it here. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, it speaks here, later on, of Zerubbabel. We read, didn't we, in verse 6. Now, let's see the picture. We see the candlesticks and the olive trees. And the angel that talked with me, verse 1 of chapter 4 again, and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold. Now remember, the church was meant to be a candlestick. And in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, was the, the one candlestick, but there were seven pipes coming out of it. The seven candlesticks, but on one, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. Now notice, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. And what's happening? As we notice, we read on, the olive trees supply the oil for the lamp. And what is the lesson? So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest not, thou not, what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel is meant to be the king, but he's feeling weak, he's feeling pathetic, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord. In other words, the church will be built. The priesthood will continue. God is going to build his church. The lamp will not go out. What does oil represent in the Old Testament? We ought to know. The Holy Spirit. And we have here dripping from these olive trees, and it was, by the way, pure olive oil that burnt in those lamps. And those would supply the light and the power. Zerubbabel probably feeling very low, but the Lord saying, it's not by your power, not by your might, but by my Spirit, I will carry my people. And then we get to Zechariah 9, we read of the Saviour, don't we? that there will be a fountain open up for sin and uncleanness for his people. The prophecy of Zechariah is full of Christ, my friends. You see, what will happen? While in these days the church and the temple were feeble, God was saying, I will do the work of building my true temple. So the figure here of the olive trees and the candlesticks, the two witnesses in the book of the Revelation, these are merely figures that God is going to keep pouring his spirit into his church, the true candlesticks, and they will be upheld by his spirit. That's the pick. We, you see, we're using, we're not making things up as we go. We're using Old Testament symbolism to apply. And you think of it. Jesus Christ, when he came, although the temple was built, remember what he said. Destroy this temple, but after three days I will raise it up. Christ completely resurrected a spiritual temple, didn't he? 
That's what he did when he came into this world. True believers, the old temple is gone. But it is in Christ. And he says, your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he comes and he lives in every true believer. And guess what? Turn to Revelation chapter 1. What did we learn there? In Revelation 1, verse 4. Think of Zerubbabel. Think of Joshua. You have two officers there. The high priest, or the priest, and Zerubbabel, who felt himself to be a poor king or ruler. But in Christ, you see, every true believer is made as a king and a priest unto God. Notice, John to the seven churches, verse 1, which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now notice, and hath made us kings and priests unto God. Now you remember, for there to be a faithful witness, there had to be a priesthood. Didn't there? And Joshua the high priest was reminded that God would take away the iniquity. And Zerubbabel the king was reminded, I will strengthen. Now the believer, every true believer has been made a king and a priest. A king in what sense? Paul says in Romans, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. If you turn there with me, Romans 5.20. He says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign. And the word, by the way, reign there is the Greek word bastilio, which is a word that is used to convey a king reigning. He reigns. That grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Now you're a new creation if you're a Christian. And then this is why Paul says in Romans 6.1 Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. How can we, he says, who are now dead to sin, Live any longer under... You reign as a king. But you don't reign to be king of your life. You reign to be a priest. And you therefore offer up yourself, not a lamb, but you offer up yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Which is your reasonable service. In that way you are both a king Sin no longer has dominion in your life. Paul says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You are under grace because God's Spirit lives in you. And by the Spirit, Paul says, we put to death the deeds of the body, and we live. But do you live to yourself, like so many professing Christians do? No. We find out what is pleasing to him. We offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. You're a priest. 
What does a priest do? He serves God day and night. And that's the sense. These are the true believers. These are the ones in the inner court that are close to God. That the empty professing church hates. Hates. Because they show up what is false. You see, this is what God has procured in his people. New creatures in Jesus Christ. And what do they have? They have the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Self-control. Against such there is no law. Because we read, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. This is why Paul says, you know what does he say? He says, I run. Run what? The race. Not as uncertainly. So I fight. First of all, it's a picture of a runner. Then secondly, as a, as a boxer. I fight, not as one that beateth the air, that's sparring the air. You know how boxers do. But he says, 1 Corinthians 9.26, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. He said, I don't let my body and my bodily appetites get the better of me. Why? Lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Useless. That's what Paul says. He says, you know what, my whole body, I bring it into subjection to God's will. I am now a priest, a high priest, not a high priest, but a priest offering up myself to God. That is my reasonable service. I'm a king, but not to live my life as I want. These are my true witnesses. These are my true people. Now, I don't know how much more time we've got, but we read in verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, that's their witness, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. Satan, in one sense, does have power, because our bodies go to the grave. But thank the Lord, he doesn't have the final victory. Remember, he brought in death. He that is the destroyer. Adam and Eve sinned and death came. And Satan in that sense has power, but he does not have power over the grave. We go to the grave now, but notice, he will kill them. But notice verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Think of it. Even Jerusalem is called Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't take pride in the land. Do you? It's, it's not the land. Their bodies will lie there. Many of the believing will lie there. 
Christ was crucified there. But notice, it's not the end. And they of the people and kings of the, and tongues of nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half. Again, it's the same figure. 1260 days. For the entire gospel age, they will live and they will die. And notice, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into graves. And this is not to be taken literally. But what they, it's saying is they will despise the believer even. They will not give them peace in death. And it brought my mind to uh, dear John Wycliffe. You know, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. We know what happened. In the 1370s, John Wycliffe, he began three very significant works as he wrote against the Church of Rome. The harlot, the false church. In his first work entitled On Divine Dominion, he aimed at the papal authority and said, well, if that's true, effectively, the word of God has no authority in the believer. Because the Church of Rome and the Pope puts himself above the word. But then in his second major work on civil dominion, Wycliffe then targeted the Roman Catholic Church's assertion over authority over the English crown. And he denied that. And he saw that there was no reason that England should be obliged to support the corrupt church of Rome. In his third major work, he called for the Bible to be translated into English. And of course, that was an anathema in Rome's eyes. Translating the Bible into a common language was heresy. And, uh, well, his works influenced many. And you know what they did to him? 43 years after his death, Rome's officials exhumed his body and they burnt his body and cast his ashes in the river Swift. You see, they won't leave God's dead people alone because they are so angry at the truth. Verse 10, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. God's true church will torment the false church and false believers. That's why there is a war. But God, by His Spirit, will supply His church so that His church, the true lampstands, will burn bright. The darker it gets, they are all fed by God's Spirit. Zerubbabel, it's not by might, but by my Spirit. And by Christ that lives in every true believer, my friends. And we notice it's not the end. Look at verse 11. And after three days and a half. What's that? We've already learnt it. That's the entire gospel age, isn't it? Figuratively speaking, the spirit of life from God entered into them. What did Christ say? Marvel not. The hour is coming. When all that are in the grave shall come out of the graves. And they stood upon their feet. 
And great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. How comforting is the truth. The end is coming. And you just remember this. Most persecution will come from a professing people. Persecution will come from the world. What did Paul say to the Ephesian elders? He says, even from amongst yourselves, false teachers, wolves, shall arise. I tell you, most of my battles, my friend, as a minister, have not come from the world. Most of my battles as a minister come from inside the church. People who profess to be true believers. But God will be glorified. God will give us strength.